He goes, do you know what white fella dreaming is? So what do you mean? He said, white fella dreaming is work. White fella dreaming is money. They are the things that I see people holding as sacred. My name is Will Small. I use poetry to capture snapshots of what it means to be human. There's no better inspiration for this than real life humans in their natural habitat. So I've been having conversations with all kinds of beautiful, passionate, interesting humans who all call the Central Coast home. From uni students to business owners, artists to activists, young and old. In each of these conversations, a poem is hiding. I'm going to find it and write it. I'm inviting you to come along for the ride and hear the conversations that spark my creative process. Stick around till the end and you'll get to hear the poem. This podcast has been proudly supported by the Central Coast Council. Join me as I dive into the untold stories of coastal citizens and seek to capture them in an original piece of spoken word poetry. <clears throat> Bill Palace. Tell us a little bit about what you do here at the University of Newcastle. Yeah, so I'm lecturing in the social work program. So we've just expanded our social work program in the last uh, 12 months and bought it from Callaghan, uh, only being offered in Newcastle, to also being offered here on the Central Coast. So I'm leading the program down here uh, and involved in lecturing right across the four years of our program. Very good. So for social work students that live on the Central Coast, that's a big perk that that program has now just moved a bit closer. Yeah, absolutely. It's huge. Uh, it, it means sort of cutting down on travel time and so more time to be studying or looking after kids and family commitments and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's a huge plus that um, you know, sort of Central Coast campus and what we offer here is being expanded for people to be able to stay local instead of having to uh, travel to Sydney or Newcastle. How long have you been on the coast for? How about you just uh, fill us in on how did you end up in this geographical location? Yeah, so I grew up in Sydney and uh, and then once I had finished high school, moved to the Central Coast. Mum and Dad had moved up and so uh, I decided to follow them up here. Uh, they were building a house at North Entrance. And uh, actually at the time, I was first year university, I was studying right here on this campus in 2000, doing a business management degree and uh, moved up here. I was commuting half the week I was in Sydney and then the other half of the week I was staying at my brother's house in Killarney Vale. And then I was I was actually working at Woolies, stacking shelves, and uh, got over it, chucked in that job, and moved up to the Central Coast. So roughly how old were you when you first... I was 18. 18 years old. So as an 18-year-old, you've grown up in Sydney, but what were your first impressions when you moved and sort of started to think of this place as your new home? Like it was always um, just this exciting kind of new adventure um, where there's just a lot more space, I think, to enjoy what was important to me. Yeah, beautiful. I, uh, I also moved here, I moved here uh, about five years ago from Canberra with that sense of spaciousness, that sense of natural beauty, amazing beaches, uh, the, the sort of different pace of life, all things that I have yeah, loved living here. What are some of the things that have changed about you um, from when you first moved here? What kind of, yeah, who are you becoming? I moved up to the coast when I was 18. I had really clear plans on going into hotel management I studied a business management degree here at the university and in the course of working in hotels, found out that that was not really what I wanted to do. I actually wanted to sort of um, make more of a difference, I think, than just pouring beers or checking people into a hotel. What's What sparked that change, do you think? 
Uh, I became um, involved, I guess, in like a faith community for the very first time. So exploring spirituality and Christian faith and those sorts of things. And I think um, through those really sort of personal experiences that I had in terms of my own spirituality, it led me to ask some pretty significant questions of myself around where do I actually want to invest my time and energy. Uh, and so I saw, I think, that the hotel industry and, you know, just all industries kind of in general – um, sort of this big sort of capitalist machine and I wanted to really connect with people a little bit deeper than just giving them a hotel key. Do you know, I became really interested in the deeper parts of people's lives um, in terms of their family, in terms of their spirituality, in terms of some of the things that they may have found challenging or been struggling with. And I think I just very, at that point in time, just very broadly wanted to make a difference, however that was, do you know, that I knew that there were people that, uh, we're living in our local community that may have um, been struggling with sort of different things and I wanted to sort of make a difference anyhow that I could. You know, it's <laughs> funny, like a uh, um, little backstory is that I actually had heard of you uh, before I moved to the coast and it was in the context of someone talking about the work that you had done with young people. And, um, you know, this person saying really positively when you get to the coast, make sure, because I was moving out to be a youth worker and they said, make sure you connect with this guy, Phil Palace. He's got an amazing rapport with young people and, and is doing some really kind of creative and innovative work. So I knew I knew you before I knew you in that sense. And as I've known you over the last five years, you're one of the first people I met on the coast. I've seen how much you have a heart to connect with people. What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? Uh, or, or what is it that keeps you up at night, ideas that continue to kick around in your head? What's the thing that drives you, the kind of most important thing that you're trying to do in the world right now? Yeah, it's a huge question. I think uh, to answer that, you know, part of the journey for me started in 2004 when I was a student here at the university studying uh, my social work degree. And uh, at that particular time, we were doing, you know, three placements that we were doing social work. And so I decided to do uh, an away placement and went to Alice Springs for three months. Uh, and that was probably for me, if I look back now, a real turning point in where I wanted to uh, invest my time and invest my energy. So 2004, hop on a plane, go to Alice Springs, land. Um, and up until that point, I think I had met uh, one university lecturer that had identified herself uh, as an Aboriginal person to me. Do you know, I'd grown up in a part of Sydney that, um, do you know, was was pretty uh, white. Um, but, but more so than that, um, I think just through my education, uh, Aboriginal people, Aboriginal history was was invisible to me. Do you know, I remember sitting back in a year four class and um, and having my teacher tell me about, you know, the, the first fleet arriving and really the standout memories from that is, you know, lessons about scurvy. And, uh, you know, these, these new uh, settlers were really um, portrayed as these pioneers that, that, mm. that, that forged this new, fantastic, exciting place. And it wasn't that Aboriginal people uh, were spoke about disparagingly. Um, it was just that they were completely absent from mm. any stories that I was told. And so that really continued for me throughout high school and throughout university to, a, to, to some extent. Uh, and it wasn't until 2004, you know, five years out of um, high school that I find myself uh, in Alice Springs. And uh, I remember checking into um, the place that I was staying in. I remember meeting my university supervisor and she was telling me, you know, go for a walk up to Coles or Woolies or whatever and, uh, and go check out um, – 
you know, the, the town a little bit and we'll sort of give you a call tonight and go out for dinner. I remember walking down to Coles and and uh, I remember seeing sort of large groups of Aboriginal people uh, with very dark skin and speaking in a language that I couldn't understand. And I remember feeling really out of my comfort zone and I remember feeling really uh, afraid. And that really shocked me and took me by surprise and really started a whole process for me of self-discovery around what is that fear about, what is that uncomfortableness about. And I remember going back to my room and really being, um, really kind of wrestling with what that was about. And since then have been on a journey sort of discovering and understanding and unpacking um, my own bias, my own values, my own uh, racism that I've been socialised into in this country. And so I was in Alice Springs for three months, uh, was flying to sort of uh, a variety of, um, you know, what we would call remote communities in a little four-seater aircraft every other week working with the uh, alcohol and other drug service based in Alice Springs Hospital. And it was really in that sort of moment where I found, um, yeah, obviously, uh, you know, there were, there were moments of, um, of shock. There were moments of really uh, seeing uh, dysfunction um, and there was also this other thing that was happening at the time, which was quite paradoxical, but finding that that there was communities um, in these places that I had never heard of before that had this incredible resilience and this credible sense of hope and this incredible sense of cultural continuity and community um, that kind of left me with this great desire to actually return. And so I found myself volunteering a number of times, sort of different school holiday programs and things like that. Uh, and then eventually starting um, sort of some paid work in in those communities. Uh, and that sort of continued to lead me on a journey where I spend now probably uh, three to four months a year out in Central Australia working with um, a particular group of communities. And I'm just really thankful that the elders and the senior people and uh, brothers and uncles in other parts of those communities have actually taken me on this journey where I've become aware of um, – you know, some of our history in this nation and some of the current context and the contemporary challenges that uh, that we're facing together in Australia. It sounds like that trip completely opened up your world in a way that you probably had never seen coming. If you think back to your younger self and where you're at now, uh, that, that younger version of Phil probably had no idea about the kind of work that you'd end up doing through that trip, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I had no intention of, say, returning to university to do a PhD. Um, my goal was really set on uh, becoming, becoming a hotel manager, uh, you know, finding a great resort to work to work work at, live in the penthouse. Yeah. <laughs> do you know, that was kind of the dream for me was, um, was uh, I guess, making, making a good career, making lots of money, living the Western dream of uh, buying my own house, having a good career, sending my kids to a good school and going on an overseas holiday every year. Do you know, I think that was probably the trajectory that I was headed. Um, but there was this other plan and there was, there was this plan that was interrupted um, by this beautiful, um, crazy experience in Central Australia. I think your question before was about, you know, what keeps you up at night? Um, well, it's some of those things, you know, yeah. it's some of what is happening in our nation that we can't have a decent, honest conversation about our history and about what's still happening. So you're probably a pretty unique voice in this conversation and you get invited to speak all around Australia in, in different spaces and places around some of these things because uh, I feel like you're someone who really has... Um, 
taken the time to listen over a long period of time. You're very careful, I think, when you speak, uh, whereas typically somebody might have that experience that you had. Uh, they go to Alice Springs, they kind of get a little bit of a social justice rush, and they go out and start kind of, you know, picket signing and things like that. I don't see you have having taken that kind of approach. Your approach has been deeply relational and, and in constant conversation with um, Indigenous people uh, and sort of acknowledging the diversity of, of opinions and views and complexity and communities and languages and just richness. So when I hear you talk about um, your experience going out there mm. uh, in 2004, you, you encountered um, greater beauty than you had ever expected to see, it sounds like. And you entered into community and relationships that have become a huge part of who you are. At the same time, you were exposed to and were shocked by um, some of the injustices, maybe sort of externally, but also within you. Some of the things you realised that your view of the world needed challenging. Um, and maybe you were sort of unintentionally part of these problems or your, your education had contributed to, to all of that. So I guess my question is, when you think about both being exposed to greater beauty as well as greater injustice in that space, that has sort of put you on a different trajectory. How do you see those things coming together? Kind of a sense of hope and despair almost. You know, there's sort of like things aren't as they should be, but there's a beautiful vision of what they could be. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess there's sort of there's a professional dimension to it in terms of what I'm doing with work and career and things like that. Um, but there's also, I think, it's, it's it's just impacted me really personally. My experience um, connecting with um, communities and places where um, people, you know, have become my brothers and my aunties and my uncles, you know, connecting with those communities, I think has really um, challenged and shaped the way that I parent. Do you know, it's challenged and it's shaped the way that I view things. It's challenged... And it's shaped the spirituality that I have now. So I think that's just a continual process of, um, you know, figuring out what's true for me and uh, what do I actually value in that. At the same time, um, sort of, I guess, professionally, it's really looking at, um, and this is where it kind of does get blurry because this professional journey and personal journey are just layered upon one another all the time. So it's really figuring out, well, how do I, as someone who, um, you know, my, my heritage is that my uh, dad came over here to Australia from uh, Greece, escaped a civil war in 1956 and uh, saw some terrible things, arrived to uh, Perth through Cairo and then ended up in Sydney. And mum's background is uh, with, you know, Irish, Scottish, uh, Danish, and English uh, background, how do I as a person in that cultural frame connect uh, with Aboriginal people in all different parts of our country? Um, and how do I as a non-Indigenous person, a person with non-Indigenous heritage, how do I do that? How do I position myself as a learner? How do I position myself as someone um, to be interrogated in terms of figuring out, you know, where are these attitudes, where are these blind spots coming from? And I think I would describe the experience. This is probably, this is probably a good answer. Actually. I think I would describe the experience as being very deeply involved to a point where it's like 
there are blindfolds continually being removed from my eyes so that things that I couldn't see six years ago or seven years ago or even six months ago, I now see them more clearly. And so it's a process whereby I am involved in in ridding myself of of lies that I've sort of bought into, I think, and finding out what is actually true and what is truth and understanding a little bit more about who I am in that place as well. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this interview. We're going to get back into it in just a tick, but I wanted to take a moment to invite you to be a part of the process of creating this work. Podcasts are free to listen to, but they aren't free to create. I would love to keep interviewing interesting humans and writing poems about them, but I could use your help to make it happen. If you're digging the Poetic Beings podcast, I want to invite you to consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash willsmall. For as little as $1 a month, you'll receive exclusive unpublished poetry written by me sent straight to your inbox. At higher levels of giving, uh, rewards include things like contributing interview questions or having my next book posted to you with a handwritten note or even getting your own poem written by yours truly. I so appreciate your support. If you want to check out my other creative work, you can go to willsmall.com.au or I run a small creative business called Lead by Story, helping people to nail their message and make every word count. If that's of interest, you can head to leadbystory.com.au. I love that image of the removal of blindfold after blindfold after blindfold. I think we all need that. In some sense, it's not always with any sort of negative intention, but we just grow up hearing stories, hearing narratives, being passed on things that whether or not we know it, they do become these lenses that we see the world through. And each time we take off one of those sets of lenses, we realise, oh, things can be seen in a different shade. They're, they're not the way that I had always thought they were. You've had that experience and and that's the personal and then you kind of drew this distinction between the personal and the professional and would it be fair to say that in some senses what you're doing in your professional life is helping to uh, raise the awareness of other people to those blindfolds so that they might go on a similar journey of seeing things more clearly with greater clarity? Yeah, absolutely. So, do you know, part of what I'm interested in um, in terms of my research is looking at, you know, as as a non-local person going into um, an Aboriginal community, how do I um, work in ways that um, are helpful? Uh, How do I work in ways that are understood? How do I challenge ways that I've been socialised into that are really unhelpful? Um, I think that's, that's definitely part of the challenge. How do I position myself across points of culture and language to be able to actually hear what local people are saying? A lot of what we know about our history, um, you know, isn't isn't the full story. And I think there is a much greater, more interesting um, story of entanglement uh, that that we would do really well to go on a journey and understand. I think that's a great word because it's it's not as clear cut as uh, this is good or this is bad or this is right or this is wrong, but everything is kind of tangled together. And to unravel things takes a bit more care and precision and it sounds like that's kind of I guess part of your journey is navigating you know there are so many voices in this conversation there are so many things to be considerate about there's so many narratives coming together but how can we slowly piece by piece just untangle and get a clearer picture and and ultimately build a a better future together where relationships 
uh, um, at the centre. As you've been on that journey of, I guess, your own uh, awareness of entanglement and maybe beginning some disentangling, um, what are some of the things along the way that you've been proudest of in terms of things you've been able to do in that space, things you've been able to um, be a part of, are the things that come to mind that you're really proud of? Yeah, it's a really tricky one to answer. Do you know, I mean, I, I think it's pretty hard as an Aussie to say that, you know, <laughs> I'm really stoked with what I did there and sort of clap yourself, uh, pat yourself on the back. I think I just feel that I'm further along in my understanding now and actually feel like I have something to contribute to the context than I was, um, you know, five years ago even. You know, the questions that I'm asking now are different. And I think I'm proud that um, I'm able to honestly sit with that and ask myself some of those difficult questions about my own blind spots in terms of my my cultural blind spots or whatever that is. I remember I was presenting uh, at a conference in Alice Springs um, two years ago and I presented this material which was really to um, mainly non-Indigenous workers and the material was about becoming aware of your own cultural story and I was suggesting that we need to become aware of our own cultural story if we have any hope of being able to um, join together with someone from a different cultural position. So a lot of the, the work and a lot of the stuff that you'll still, still see online and you'll still hear about um, cultural competence workshops, and I was really critiquing that idea that um, cultural competence is possible. I don't think that you can become competent in someone else's culture. And so often what cultural competence workshops do um, is uh, they can actually draw a wedge between people that sees them become further and further apart rather than actually connecting. And so I was suggesting that the first part of this journey is actually connecting with your own cultural story, becoming aware of your cultural blind spots and then approaching things humbly and questioning yourself as much as you're questioning the context that you're in. And uh, about halfway through my presentation, there was some um, uh, Aboriginal elders from Alice Springs and different places around Alice Springs that came and stood at the back of uh, the room. And uh, here I am as a uh, you know person with non-Indigenous heritage presenting this information um, on their land. And uh, I remember feeling quite nervous about that. You know, I remember feeling like I want to be really humble here and just share what I've learned. I don't want to speak for Aboriginal people um, and I definitely uh, want to be challenging people like myself who go in and out of these communities to be able to work in ways that are, are better. And I remember a couple of the, um, the female elders approaching me afterwards and, uh, and actually giving me a hug and saying, thank you for saying this. Do you know, and, and keep going because some of these things are things that we've been talking about for a long time. Um, but white people, non-Indigenous people, people from other places are often unable to hear exactly what we're saying. But maybe you're going to put it in a way that people could hear and understand and challenge people to be able to work with. And I think that was um, a really affirming time for me that... Uh, maybe a, uh, a non-Indigenous uh, researcher can do something of worth in this space and get away from those polarised ideas about what is good and what is bad, but actually 
together and I know that I'm stumbling and I'm falling and I'm still going to make mistakes, but maybe together we can actually um, connect. What would be some of the most challenging aspects of what you do um, and, and your research that would stop you from keeping on going? Look, I wrestle all the time with my position in this in terms of who I am um, and whether I should be involved in this space at all sometimes. I don't want to, um, I guess, become this this guy that uh, somehow feels like he's he's got the answers, he's got things sorted out because he's spent some time in Central Australia. Do you know, I really need to position myself um, in my research as much as positioning any other aspect of what I'm actually looking at. I think that constant interrogation of myself, I find that really difficult sometimes. Do you know, I find it uh, challenging to think, um, you know, am I, am I doing the right thing here? Just because I had an experience two years ago and there are a couple of people that affirm that experience doesn't mean that everything from here on in is sweet or that somehow I have permission to go ahead with everything that I'm doing. It's really about constantly checking in with other people who can point out my blind spots. And so that's difficult. You know, that's really hard to go on a journey uh, where you have to become aware of things that you might be doing that maybe aren't helpful Mm. and to position yourself where you have to build up some really honest relationships um, that cannot be divorced or separated from the wider historical narrative and the, and the current nar- narrative within our nation, to be able to position yourself in a way that you have good mates from different cultural positions that are able to challenge you. Sometimes I think maybe I shouldn't be involved in this space at all. So that, that's, that's the constant wrestle. Uh, I think in terms of PhD, do you know, like writing is hard. <laughs> Yep. You know, uh, I think all writers know that um, some t- days you you know you you can pump out a thousand words or two thousand words and things are really great, and then you might go for a couple of weeks where it just doesn't feel like things are coming together. Um, and I think um, a PhD has put me in a position where uh, that is being scrutinised by my supervisors and others and by myself uh, more than ever. You know, why did I use that particular word there? And is that actually what I want to say? And is that actually true? I find that process uh, really challenging. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. So in that, what are the things, the practices, the the things you have in place that actually help you um, to keep going? Even when there's a thousand questions around it, what are the things that keep you just taking that next step? Yeah, look, I think my relationships, um, you know, with my family, um, you know, my wife and my kids and, and family here, but also, um, you know, family connections now in Central Australia as well. Do you know, I think um, being able to uh, be out on country, um, spend some time um, out there involved in cultural practices is actually something that I find uh, really freeing for me uh, and also a place where I can um, put myself in a place of accountability in a place where I can kind of be encouraged and challenged. So I think the things for me would be having really uh, good close mates here on the coast uh, and in Central Australia that are Aboriginal people who are able to pull me up if I go too far or also able to encourage me and say, hey, yeah, you're, you don't have that heritage, but hey, keep going because this is really important, the work that you're doing. In the, a whole journey of the blindfolds being taken off and the process of... Um 
you know, learning to see things differently. Uh, what do you think there's something in that that you've learned that it would be on your heart that other people would learn also? Firstly, I think uh, we need to acknowledge that narratives around, stories around uh, Aboriginal people in this country are often positioned in a deficit narrative. So we often hear uh, terrible stories um, about remote Aboriginal communities particularly. Um, There is this uh, false dichotomy of uh, the more traditional Aboriginal people in Central Australia versus maybe people who are seen as less traditional on the coast. And I think that ends up being um, very difficult for everyone involved in that Aboriginal people um, with lighter skin are often called upon to uh, qualify their Aboriginality through all sorts of questions about family connection, about local knowledge, about do you go on ceremony, do you know your language? Um, And I think that is um, just as um, racist as, you know, other expressions that we would see as racism very clearly. Uh, So I think we need to be very careful as individuals and as nations when we look at our media how different instances are portrayed. Um, so you can uh, have a non-Indigenous person be involved in something uh, exactly the same as an Indigenous person and those two stories will be portrayed very differently in the media and so I think we need to have a critical eye when we're kind of looking at that sort of stuff. Some of the other things I would say is that um, when we think about um, engaging across points of culture, um, we also need to think that we're not there to to uh, make a difference in terms of solving anything or rescuing anything. But we also have to think about, um, you know, what is this beautiful culture that has been continuing in Australia for thousands of years? What can that um, offer us as a nation? Not to my knowledge, but to acknowledge that there are ways of operating in this nation that have been Um, occurring for thousands of years that would be able to give us a way forward in some of our most complex challenges. And uh, I think finally I I remember arriving into Alice Springs one day and I drove to um, one of the elders' houses at Old Timers Camp and um, he's a man that that I I refer to as my dad. You know, he's taught me a lot. He's, um, He's grown me up in terms of cultural understanding And uh, he said to me, how are all the white fellas in Sydney going? And I sort of laughed and I said, oh, look, I I didn't ask all of them before I left. And he said, well, how's their chukurpa? How's their dreaming? And I said, well, white fellas don't really have dreaming. He said, well, they do. I've seen it. I've been to Sydney. I've been to Canberra. I've been to Melbourne. I've been to those places. I've gone to the train platform in the morning and I've seen people uh, arrive there before the sun is up. I've seen them sit on the train and play with their phones and look at emails on their phones. And then I've seen them get off the train and go into those high-rise buildings in the city and sit there for hours and hours a day typing away. And then I've got back on the train and they've come back to home. Their kids are back asleep already. They've spent the entire day away from their kids. They haven't seen their kids at all because before they left for work, their kids were still asleep. When they got home, their kids were back asleep. He goes, do you know what white fella dreaming is? So what do you mean? He said, white fella dreaming is work. White fella dreaming is money. They are the things that I see people holding as sacred. 
And so that was a real realization for me that I am a cultural person, that I have deep values and things that I hold sacred that I have never questioned or interrogated before. And so I think for me, it's about figuring out what is your cultural story? What do you hold sacred? And how can you position yourself up to other realities around you? Wow. That was uh, such a powerful story. And um, those questions could be life-changing questions if people honestly ask them. It's changed my life for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, it's, it's changed the way that I look at things. It's changed the way that um, I view money and view things. Um, I would say in some ways I'm less ambitious now in terms of my career, but I'm uh, passionately and furiously ambitious in terms of my family. Um, I think that that connection uh, with my dad out there and, and other people uh, really has taught me how to be integrated with myself, how to be integrated with other people, how to connect to this land and how to connect with my creator. Uh, somehow I'm trying to navigate what does that mean for me? How do I live being connected culturally to Pitanjara and Yangkundjara mob in Central Australia? And how do I also live here on the coast and be connected to the land and the stories here in dark and young country? And that is part of uh, the joy and the wrestle that I'm involved in. Thank you so much, Phil, for sharing some of your stories, for sharing um, some powerful questions that I really would encourage anyone listening to ask those questions, to seek out that narrative. I love the idea that you shared that um, we need to become more familiar with our own cultural story and place first. And I know that's something I still have a long way to grow in, but it's sort of this idea that... Um, the more we know ourselves, that's actually the better we become for other people rather than trying to fix all the other problems in the world when we haven't spent time understanding our place, our context, um, our, our blindfolds, our narratives, all of those things. So thank you for being willing to share some of that. I'm going to write a poem trying to capture this person and this context and the, these sort of themes um, but it would help me if I just asked you a quick few questions and uh, I just want you to give me your first gut gut answer to these questions. So finish this sentence. Phil Palace is? Wrestling. If he was a piece of furniture, what would he be? Chair. If he was a piece of music, what would he be? Oh, I don't even know how to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> if he was a texture, what would he be? Definitely hairy. <laughs> Uh, if Phil Palace was a landscape, what would he be? These are hard questions, man. These are harder than the ones before. I just go with your gut, man. Desert. Desert. And at the centre of that desert, I found an object. What was it? Pool of water. And I dove into the pool of water. And what was at the centre of the pool of water? <laughs> treasure. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, <laughs> Phil Palace, you are a treasure. <laughs> I have treasured my time with you and uh, I'm going to go and write a poem about you. So yeah, lovely. Thank you so much. Is there any final thought or final sentence that you want to give to wrap up our conversation? No, I just invite people to explore their own cultural story and I think position yourselves in ways that you can connect with um, 
you know, Aboriginal cultural stories here on the Central Coast. It's a rich, rich landscape and there are people willing to take you on that journey. And I think if you approach humbly and respectfully, um, you'll be amazed at the journey that you kind of get taken on. Phil. Phil is wrestling. Since those early days discovering he wanted to make a difference, he has asked the hard questions, when to speak, when to listen. Could these stories of entanglement be retold and rewritten? Gradually learning to use the voice he's been given, while constantly questioning his own position, it's a balancing act of being humble and driven. He treads carefully on sacred ground, Acknowledging the stories there to be found by those who stop long enough to hear their sounds. Phil is a red dust desert dreaming. His dreams have changed since early days of hotel chains. He is a story that has been reframed. It was a gradual shift, but he can trace the day. 2004 feet enter the plane. Peer out the window when it's all perspective We hand down stories but the range is selective And you'll find in places of pain live deep connections And life can change when we pause at the intersections Like when the script you've been handed since primary school days With its two-dimensional cutouts of complex shapes Doesn't match what you see when you step off the plane And you enter unfolding paradox as you're turned inside out On a social work placement you find a place to belong Exchange the narrative of problems for stories and songs. Begin stripping off blindfolds one by one and find the process of the inner world coming undone is where you lose who you were to gain who you'll become. Phil is wrestling, dreaming, learning, walking, thinking, waiting, writing, talking. And he looks at me and says... What is your cultural story? What do you hold as sacred? And now I am wrestling too.